Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Scott McCartney is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney. Pratt & Whitney is committed to working smarter, cleaner, and greener today for a more sustainable tomorrow. Learn more at prattwhitney.com. And by Dohop. Dohop is revolutionizing travel connectivity. Learn how to unlock unlimited connections simply at dohop.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at airlinesconfidential.com. Welcome to Airlines Confidential. I'm Scott McCartney, and I'm here to report some good news for travelers in the travel industry. I got my new passport. I mentioned this, Ben Baldanza, because there has been a lot of reporting on huge delays with processing passport renewals and new applications. But I sent my passport in in about mid-August, and I got it back about four weeks after paying for the expedited service. That's faster than if I had applied for renewal last spring or summer. The State Department says regular renewals now take about 8 to 11 weeks and expedited 5 to 7 weeks. Mine was even faster than that. So who says government is unresponsive and inefficient? Well, maybe they're scared of you, Scott. (laughs) But that's great news. The traffic jam for passport renewals was a huge hassle for many. I'm glad to hear at least one data point that it's back to normal. Mm -hmm. Our son needs a passport now because he just crossed the age when he can get a 10-year versus five-year when they're younger. So we have to get him his now. And encouraged by your note, We're going to apply right away. Excellent. Also getting back to normal, in a sense, our airline earnings, and not really in a good way. The revenge travel trend after the pandemic seems to be slowing down, and maybe we're moving into a more normal seasonal pattern. I never liked that term, revenge travel. Anyway, it sounded way too negative to (laughs) me. Mm -hmm. We'll get a better read on that starting this week when Delta reports its third quarter earnings. Delta kicks off the earnings season as they usually do, and I'll be listening closely to what airlines have to say about softening demand. We'll talk more about that with this week's guest, John Heimlich, the familiar chief economist at Airlines for America. I'm with you on revenge travel, Ben. It sounds like a silly term. I'm really looking forward to talking to John. It's an important moment in the financial fortunes of airlines and what's ahead for travelers. He always brings good information and great insights. Ben, it was a really interesting week of airline news. There were some significant announcements of developments for the future, and I think it's worth highlighting that for listeners because they can often get overlooked. A lot of change is coming. In the gee whiz, really futuristic category, engine maker Rolls-Royce announced that it had successfully pulled off a controlled hydrogen burn in a jet engine. 
Airbus and Rolls are betting that hydrogen will be the clean fuel of the future for airplanes. And so this is a significant engineering milestone. A modified business jet engine was run at takeoff power, burning hydrogen. Hydrogen burns much hotter than kerosene, which is what jet fuel is. Rolls-Royce said it developed new fuel spray nozzles in the engine that handle the much higher temperatures. Another engine milestone, our sponsor Pratt & Whitney had a good win when Boeing announced that it selected Pratt's geared turbofan engine for its X-66A sustainable flight demonstrator with NASA. Listeners may recall that Boeing is building a test aircraft with struts connecting the wings to the fuselage. It's officially called the Transonic Truss Braced Wing Concept. It's a public-private partnership to see if this new design will reduce fuel burn and thus reduce carbon emissions from aviation. Boeing has suggested that if it works, this could be the model for a 737 replacement airplane. Flight tests should begin in about 2028. This is really good news for Pratt and the GTF engine, which has had a lot of bad news lately because of a manufacturing problem with a contaminated material that could cause cracking. This has led to a lot of engines being grounded for repairs. The Boeing selection is a good vote of confidence for the GTF. One other futuristic milestone, Boom Supersonic says it has moved to the first level of the FAA certification process for its Overture airplane. That just means that the FAA will begin laying out requirements that it wants Boom to meet for the airplane to get certified. That compliance checklist will be long, and the devil will likely be in the details in terms of what the FAA expects in terms of noise and emissions as well as the structure of the airplane that will operate at very high altitude. In August, the FAA cleared Boom to begin test flights with a small-scale demonstrator. Boom has orders from United, Japan Airlines, and American. The Overture is designed to carry 65 to 80 passengers at Mach 1.7, faster than the speed of sound, over water. There will be a lot of scrutiny of how loud the Overture's sonic boom is when it goes supersonic, And that's why it would only go supersonic over water and what emissions are likely for carrying a relatively small passenger load at very fast speeds. You're going to burn a lot of fuel at high altitude to do that. What do you think, Ben? Are you all in on hydrogen, truss-supported wings, and boom? Which one wins? I'm two for three, Scott. (laughs) I like the truss-supported wings. I'm eager to learn more about hydrogen, and I'm very skeptical of boom. It's not that I don't think they're good engineers. I'm just not convinced there's enough of a market for what they do. If you look today, over 92% of all flights flown in the world are under 2,000 miles. So they're competing for a space that's pretty small, real long haul. And the question is, will enough people pay the premium to save a couple of hours? I can tell you, it was difficult to go to London when I worked for U.S. Airways, 
because the flight was so short. You actually wanted the flight to be a bit longer so you could sleep and be well rested when you landed. So I'm just not sure about the market for Boom. But of the other two, I like them both. My biggest concern about hydrogen is how we're going to learn as a people how to store and move that fuel safely. It seems highly combustible, and the thought of big operations near airports and a lot of people filled with hydrogen gas just sounds kind of scary to me. (laughs) So I like the fuel. I like its clean burning property. But we all know that planes need a lot of fuel and need it regularly. So being able to move it and store it safely, I think is a long pull in the hydrogen tent. I don't know enough about the truss-supported wings, but I really like the idea, and kudos, as you said, to Pratt & Whitney for getting the GGF selected. I hope that means this can be thought of as maybe a turning point for them in getting that engine fully back online. Yeah, it's interesting. You raise great points uh, about all of them. On hydrogen, I'm I, I'm with you on the safety aspect. It, it's, you're going to have to have a very different airplane design to carry a lot of compressed hydrogen and and you have to keep it cool um it's it's going to be not it's not just getting the engine to work it's uh it's the whole environment that goes with it the different airplane the storage the how do you fuel how do you how do you keep from all this becoming a huge uh, terrorist target hydrogen has a whole lot of challenges um to me the truss supported wing is a is an interesting idea, but it's it's an incremental step, right? It's a hey, can we save another ten percent? It's not can we save ninety percent? It's it's can we save ten percent? It may be a good interim step. Um, it's not a new design in that sense. It seems like this should have been done a long time ago if it really does save ten or twenty percent. But I'm I'm glad it's moving forward. And boom, I think I, I you know you you raise a great point and. I think the the environmental concerns and the fuel burn concerns are are really the big issues. Uh, I think you could see a world where Boom could make transoceanic trips um, much more like going from Chicago to L.A. Uh, if it was three hours, it wouldn't need to be an overnight flight. And probably they would benefit from landing slots in Europe that weren't early morning uh, overnight flight arrivals, right? Because... Um, there are a whole lot of those landing slots filled up, but if you could fly in the middle of the day, be there in three hours, that might be uh, attractive to a lot of people. But who knows the the cost and uh, and the environmental concerns? We've seen a lot of backlash of of private jet travel on international flights among 
Hollywood celebrities and all. Um, they fly commercial because of the enormous cost and the, the emissions uh, that come from just a few people on a jet airplane. It's interesting. I think the airline orders are a bit defensive on this. Uh, it's a kind of thing where, hey, maybe we better get our order in in case this works. Um, and maybe we get our, better get an order in for the um, for the PR of supporting futuristic concepts. But it'd be really interesting to see if these guys ever fly it. I think you nailed it there, Scott. I think United's order was a very political order mm -hmm. in the sense that they were saying, we're part of the future, we're looking to the future. I think American ordered it on the lemming theory that mm -hmm. if United gets it, we better have it. Yep. I don't know why Japan Airlines ordered it. I'd like to speak to someone there as to how they're thinking about it. Yeah. Well, you know, Japan, you get out over the water very quickly, uh, leaving Japan, and uh, and they have long distances to cover. So um, that's, that is one area where it could make a real difference for, for speeding up travel. Even Japan, Hawaii, for example. Yeah, yeah. One other interesting news item that caught my eye, Scott, Andrew Nacella, a guest of the show at United, said that by 2027, United would have an average of 16 first-class seats per short-haul departure, up from 13 today and 9 in 2019. United is going strong for premium seats and upgaging its fleet. Nocella said demand for premium seats and paid upgrades continues to grow. There are more reasons for the upgaging too. First, the pilot shortage is forcing airlines to get rid of the smallest planes, air traffic control problems are also forcing upgaging, especially in New York. So it's interesting to see that all play out in a number like Andrew presented. What do you think about that? Will people pay for this or will this all be upgrades? No, I think people will pay. Uh, I, I think we've seen that at, at Delta and others. Um, I think we're we're at a point where, in some ways, airlines have created this demand by making the coach product uh, so distasteful in the back of the airplane that more and more people uh, feel like they have to pay, um, and and they appreciate the the opportunities to pay at an affordable price rather than uh, sort of the, the past, uh, you want $1,000 for a first-class fare for a two-hour flight, no thank you. But if you offer it to me for $75 or $95, yeah, I'll take it. So I think that will continue. Of course, as, as the economy softens, if the economy softens, um, that can certainly change. And then it becomes uh, the free upgrade uh, again. We might see a a glorious return of the free upgrade. Wouldn't frequent flyers love that? 
Um, it's unlikely, but um, but certainly possible. Uh, so I don't think there's a lot of risk in in that either way. Um, you know, for United, uh, that came out of an announcement of orders for 787s and A321neos. I went back and looked at United's fleet a little bit. It's among the oldest of, of all the airlines. Um, United's still flying 757-200s and classic A320s and 777-200s that, uh, that are all on average more than 25 years old and 767s that average more than 27 years old. So United's ordering lots of planes to replace those and also for growth. Another factor in all this is clearly sustainability. United CEO Scott Kirby is all in, not only on the future of continued capacity constraints, but also on a future of increasing environmental concerns that will force airlines to fly fewer flights with larger airplanes. Of course, you could argue that his boom order certainly contradicts that, right? (laughs) There's a risk in all this. I remember Robert Crandall used to say, you could never have an airplane that was too small. That means if you can easily sell all the seats, you sell for higher ticket prices. The most profitable flights are often the ones where you fill every seat at high prices. If you have a plane too big with too many empty seats, you have to cut prices. And when the economy softens, as it always does, big planes are the worst to have because they cost more to fly. So upgaging may make a whole lot of sense today, but it could look like a mistake someday in a bad travel recession. I think that's right, Scott. But I also agree with you that for now, United strategy looks right. You know, I think I told you this off the show, but when my sister flew on American from D.C. to Albany on a small jet. I bought her the ticket, and then it offered me the option to put her in first class for just 39 bucks. <laughs> and I said, for sure, I'll do that. And yeah. she sat in first class. The question is, for short-haul travel, can they get enough of that? And is all that enough for the real estate versus just having more coach seats? I'm betting for right now, they're making a smart choice. You know, I I have to add one story, Ben. And it's not always the amenities on the airplane, right? Um, We flew uh, from Tel Aviv to Amman, Jordan, and it's about a 20-minute flight. Um, it's, it's, it's a little bit like flying from LaGuardia to Kennedy. And I got one of those auction upgrade offers. So I put in a, a low bid and, and I got it. And it was not about the, the 20 minutes in the, in the airline seat, which, you know, the seat was fine, but it wasn't like you were going to get any great service on a 20-minute flight. But then you got there, and you got the royal bus when, when you landed, and, uh, and you got the, the speed line through passport control. And all of a sudden, the amenities on the ground made it worth the twenty-nine or thirty-nine dollars that I had I had bid for that. Um, we we were we were felt quite smug riding in the king's bus uh, into from the from the airplane to the terminal. 
you know, for the flights that have those advantages, airlines need to make sure they're marketing that. Yeah. They offer the upgrade. Yeah, it was a complete surprise to us. Yeah, that's terrific. Well, Airlines Confidential wouldn't exist without the support of our sponsors. We want to thank Pratt & Whitney. At Pratt & Whitney, the pursuit of more sustainable aviation is foundational. And we just got to talk about that this week. For decades, Pratt & Whitney has been at the forefront of revolutionary advancements in aircraft propulsion technology. And by working smarter, cleaner, and greener today, they are committed to supporting the aviation industry in its goal of reaching net zero CO2 emissions by 2050. Learn more about Pratt & Whitney's smarter technology, cleaner fuel, and greener business at prattwhitney.com. And we want to thank Doha, which is revolutionizing travel connectivity. Duop is a travel technology provider enabling airlines to expand their network, offer more connectivity, create additional partnerships, and focus on improving the customer experience with more offers, services, and travel options. Airlines benefit from generating additional revenue, lowering their costs, all while maintaining full customer ownership. Plus, when things go wrong, Duop works with airlines and offers assistance in helping passengers reach their final destination. A great partner to have in those situations. Visit dohop.com. That's D O H O P.com. John Heimwick is familiar to the airline's confidential audience and known throughout the industry for his keen insights and analysis on aviation economics and how the broader economy is impacting the airline industry. He's vice president and chief economist at Airlines for America, where he's been for 22 years. Before that, he spent five years at United Airlines in financial planning, financial analysis, and international and regulatory affairs. John, it's an interesting time of transition to have you back on the show. Give us your assessment of the state of airline finances today. Uh, It's a pleasure to be back with you, uh, Scott and Ben, and and thanks for having me. Uh, Interesting times indeed. Uh, Good news is I get to use the plus sign a little bit more these days, some black ink and Generally speaking, um, you know, overall things are on an upswing, of course, continuing to emerge from the recovery and some hiccups. Uh, the, the balance sheets are uh, not quite uh, where they were pre-pandemic. Um, there's not a single carrier by S&P whose credit rating is restored to its pre-pandemic level. However, several are within a single notch of that rating. So, you know, we paid down a lot of debt. Um, revenues have been strong, uh, but, but uh, you know, cost creep is the word of the day without too much to be said in productivity. <laughs> that makes sense, John. Do you have a sense as to how much debt the airlines took on during the pandemic and how long it might take to get back to sort of pre-pandemic debt ratios? 
Yeah, you know, uh, going into the pandemic, we were at about gross debt of around $105 billion for the 10 largest U.S. passenger airlines. And they added somewhere on the order of, I think, $55 billion in gross debt, or maybe 60, so 160, 165 total. Uh, I'm not sure where it resides at the moment. I know they've paid down a significant chunk. We probably have, probably be 2025 when things are fully kind of leveled off. I can tell you that net interest expenses from last year has been cut in half this year. So we went from about five to six billion a year run rate on interest to three billion a year. And uh, part of that, somewhat ironically, is that because they have high cash levels because of all the money um, they borrowed, the higher interest rates, uh, they've actually generated interest income on on the cash they have, which has helped offset some of the debt-related interest expense. So that's where we are. No, that's interesting. Cause I would have thought uh, with interest rates high, the the cost of the debt would, would be going up. That's really interesting. Yeah, it's, you know, so two factors. One is how much, you know, interest-bearing cash reserves you have to offset. And then the second one is what portion of your debt is variable versus fixed rate. So... And that can, that can change a lot by carrier. But in, in general, that mix, as well as the fact that they've just used cash flow to retire a good chunk of debt, means that net interest expense has come down. Interesting. So we're coming into earnings season, and, and it probably it looks like it'll be, at least for, for most airlines, a, a good earnings season. It was a busy summer of travel. How, how does this year compare historically? My sense is good, not great, that 2019 was probably a lot better for earnings when fuel was cheaper and labor was less expensive and business travel was more robust and interest rates were lower and airlines had less debt. Yeah, I mean, uh, most of that, I would say, is spot on with a small caveat. So the uh, good but not great is is an accurate characterization. You know, for the first half of the year, pre-tax margin was around 5%. You know, that's about one third of the U.S. corporate average. Now, you know, I think maybe maybe pre-tax income will be 10 billion or so this year. But, you know, the golden years were really 15, 16 and 17, actually. Well, 2019 was kind of the gold standard from a volume standpoint uh, of travel. Uh, it, it was not the gold standard from a profitability standpoint. And what happened basically is you came off four years of $100 a barrel oil, 2011, 12, 13, 14, and you had you know transformation of, of fleets and fuel efficiency practices and really revenue management to an upgaging all these things to adapt to that period. And then when, when oil softened in, in the following few years and before a, a ton of capacity came back online, Airlines enjoyed pretty good margins. So 15 was the best. We had something like 14% pre-tax margin. Pre-tax income levels were quote closer to 20 billion. 16 and 17 were a little bit softer, but but still very solid high single-digit margins. Then we had 18 and 19, where a lot of capacity and and really rapid growth of the ultra-low-cost sector came online. Uh, yields deteriorated a bit, and the other thing that was going on. In that 15, 16, 17 period, where generally jet fuel was flirting with a buck sixty a gallon, and in 18, 19, we're talking more like two dollars a gallon. So, those were the countervailing forces. 
All that said, yes, Scott, uh, this, this year will be good, not great, and obviously still digging out of that big COVID hole. John, there's been a lot of talk about a decline in demand this fall. Do you see this as a big change, or is it just a return to sort of normal seasonality? Yeah, you know, a great question, Ben. Uh, there's been a lot of talk about it and some speculation, but it's generally been limited to, I think, the lower fare clientele and probably a portion of the uh, the population that's a little more feeling the pinch from some inflationary forces, maybe the return of student loan debt payments and kind of the back to work, a little less travel flexibility. You know, we, we've heard from several carriers also that demand remains quite strong, especially international premium economy, those sorts of things, and even controlled for some of the same markets like Cancun. We hear different things from different carriers. So we are not, look, We, I just got fresh data from TSA this morning for the month of September. TSA screened passengers were 6% higher in September than they were in September 2019. Hmm. That's the best month on a year over 19 basis I've seen. It was also the first month in which our members and their regional partners saw domestic volumes um, exceed 2019. You know, the strength has been Atlantic, U.S. and Mexico, and U.S. other Latin, and uh, now we've seen domestic a little better. So I, I think where the there is some easing on uh, on yields, but it, but in, in general, uh, demand for air travel is, uh, I think, solid. And I think if you talk to most carriers, I know you want to talk a little about air traffic control and whatnot, but they would still like to be putting out more flights than the, the system is allowing them to. So I, I do think there is a, a, a bifurcation of demand and there is a portion that's flowing, but I don't think it's universal. Hmm. So there's been a lot of talk over the last uh, year, 18 months, uh, about higher ticket prices and the contribution that made to the inflation rate. Are, are ticket prices still high compared to the previous year, or have they been coming down? You know, on an inflation-adjusted basis, for sure, they're coming down. That started, uh, I think, around April of this year. It'll be interesting to see the third quarter results, but I, I think that phenomenon is behind us and there's been downward pressure on fair Scott. So mm -hmm. uh, that that's part of the story. And I think it circles back to the, your earlier question, which is uh, particularly in the lower cost segment, there's been the, the pressure to retain volume has brought about uh, more discounting. Uh, to mm -hmm. the, so, so there's been a trade-off since airlines have always been considered a low-margin business, and the combination of high fuel prices and these big raises for pilots and other work groups make it even tougher. Can airlines afford, or how can they afford, the big labor contract increases We've seen. Yeah, well, I think I think some of them have, you know, transformed enough where I think they can't absorb all of it, but they can absorb it to the extent that they can remain profitable. I think there are some carriers, and of course, I'm not going to get into naming, but there are some carriers who will struggle 
to absorb that. We're in an extraordinary period of cost convergence where those labor rates are moving up. And I think the, the real important point here is labor rates are one thing. It's the lack of corresponding productivity gains that is unique in this time around, I think. Most mm-hmm. times in the past, you've seen uh, you know new contracts and uh, labor rates, have, with, with except for these crises, have, have gone up. But there have been some time the productivity or work role benefit, and that just didn't appear in this round. And that spans really all carrier segments. And, you know, we're in a period of, you know, trying to retain a skilled workforce. So there's there's constant pressure to uh, to do that. And, we're, and, and then we're also, you know, competing on a sort of workplace flexibility, you know, sick leave, vacation, all those things with other uh, employers. So, you know, that's a challenge. I think it will be a challenge for some carriers far more than others. So that's why I think the non-labor activity on the cost side of the P&L and bets on the structure of demand are going to be so important. Well, I don't know if this ties in too or, or not, but one thing that seems to have saved big airline profitability is the sale of frequent flyer miles to banks and credit card companies at some big airlines, it looks like they'd be losing lots of money without the revenue from their loyalty programs. How important are credit cards to airlines? Yeah, so I don't have a quantitative answer for you, and, that, and that's always a tough one. Even the top equity analysts uh, often debate uh, that answer. But we know that they're an important source of cash flow and a tremendously important source of, of loyalty to you keep that spending coming and to keep it spending toward that brand. And if anything, you see they've diversified their partnerships with, you know, with uh, Lyft and Uber and hotels and grocery stores and uh, Starbucks and the like. So that's uh, definitely an important source of revenue, a way to keep uh, a loyal premium customer base. And uh, that's why that's why we've thrown our hat in the ring in this um credit card competition act legislation to make sure that doesn't go away and people can keep their points going. Mm-hmm. John, you have the best crystal ball I'm aware of. So what's your outlook for the rest of the year and into next year? Are you thinking about a recession or at least a travel recession? You know, I appreciate your comment. I I, I don't know if I have the best crystal but I don't anticipate a travel recession. I think the rates of growth may slow a bit, uh, and may, maybe we're around the corner from that. But at, at this point, I think we'll have as much or more volume, at least next year. We, we still have this, I think, structural gradual return of corporate, not necessarily to its pre-pandemic levels, but but there there is business travel that, that's still coming back. We still have some international tailwinds. Uh, I think some of this, I think there is some uh, perhaps exhaustion of the revenge travel and some of the domestic, but it's it's not something that keeps me up at night. You know, we've been counter-cyclical the last couple of years. In the broader economy, you know, um, I, I don't necessarily think we'll have a recession. I think the first half of the 24 could be a little bit weak. But I think by the time we get to the second half of the year, we'll be in 
in decent shape. You know, I, I think one of the things that gives me the most hope is that one, consumers have really been relentless, uh, broad, broadly U.S. consumers, not just air consumers, have been uh, relentless in their spending in the face of higher interest rates and uh, inflationary pressures. Now, again, that, that rate of growth could slow. Uh, but um, also the the structural change in people's work schedules and work from anywhere, uh, to me, is a structural positive for the travel sector going forward. I, I think it's made a very big difference. We've talked a lot on the podcast about the cost of air traffic control delays, and I've suggested that what we really need is some kind of Manhattan Project-type effort to address the hiring and training problems at the FAA, as well as the modernization uh, technology failures. We keep doing the same thing every year and expect a different outcome, and it's just not working. Um, have you tried to quantify the costs of air traffic control delays to airlines and, and to travelers? So, so fortunately, I didn't have to do that uh, myself. Uh, <laughs> back in uh, the late aughts, uh, FAA commissioned a consortium of universities to do a total delay impact study. And FAA has done a good job, at least through 2019, of updating those impacts. And to the in, in total to the U.S., uh, it's on the order of $30 billion plus a year. Uh, of that amount, it's about $8 billion to passenger carriers and about $18 billion to travelers uh, in the value of their time. There's also some lost productivity in the economy and some general GDP decline. You add it all up, you get close to $33 billion, I think. So that, that's a big number a year. Uh, we know it matters. We know it also matters in terms of uh, not just time savings, but fuel and crew and uh, emissions and things we all care about. And, uh, you know, you said it well. It's, it's kind of the perennial discussion. I'm I'm hoping that uh, we see some progress here in the next couple of years. But as you know, in, in the confirmation hearing from Mike Whitaker, should we open another traffic control academy? And how fast do we need to hire to offset attrition and, and account for that? So we've got a ways to go. And, you know, what you see is that the carriers continue driven by a number of factors. But I think airspace constraints are a big one. They continue to upgauge. And we'll lean toward accommodating demand that way rather than through increased frequency. So we've got a ways to go. Right. I don't, I don't know if the model takes into um, schedule changes, um, but, you know, we've seen seen airlines f forced to make schedule cuts in, in the New York area. And, you, you know, you just mix that in. And, um, I mean, that... Thirty billion. I think that's more than what the current FAA budget is. Um, we could we could save a lot of money with a little with some attention to the FAA. Yeah, and unfortunately, they only get about three and a half billion a year in their capital budget, known as F and E or facilities and equipment. And I think that's a sadly low amount uh, to not just upgrade their building footprint, their hardware and software, but also uh, just to maintain it. Yeah. Uh, I think that's just a weak capital budget. And as you mentioned, the, the staffing needs, the training, and, and really luring folks who, you know, grew up with iPads and then are dealing with a lot of paper-intensive processes once they get to the job. It's hard to lure those people into the workforce. Yeah. You know, you can see highways and 
see potholes and know when it needs repair. You can't see the airways, and I think that hurts us. Yeah, that's one irony of air travel for sure, except uh, I guess you can kind of see them when you're sitting on the tarmac waiting for your departure queue. <laughs> yeah. So that's right. Well, before we let you go, John, what do you see as the biggest economic headwind right now for the industry? And is there a tailwind we can be excited about? Yeah, I think on the headwind side, you know, we've we've covered them. It's the, like so many other sectors, how do we rediscover productivity gains in the coming years? You know, it is great to reward and retain workers, but of course, and it's not just about labor, but in, in all facets of the business, whether it's backdrop or crew repositioning, how do we leverage technology and the like to, um, you know, operate more efficiently, get the most out of the assets we have. And very much related to that is, of course, aircraft utilization and crew utilization tied to air traffic control. And I think that's our other big headwind is how do we accommodate the demand out there as efficiently as possible with all the constraints? And I think in some of the aircraft orders, you see how carriers are attempting to wrestle with that. But some are just being forced to operate a smaller schedule than they would like to. You know, we've heard different comments about Newark versus Dulles uh, for, in, in that example. Uh, on tailwinds, you know, I, I think we still, uh, people still forget how recent some of the international uh, border reopening is in terms of COVID protocols. And you know, it was only, I think, last August that the South Pacific started to open up. And then in October that Canada, Japan, Hong Kong, and so, uh, some other parts of Asia started to open up. And I, so I, I still think there's plenty of runway there. Um, you know, the strong dollar, I think, has been, of course, very favorable for U.S. point of sale and U.S. citizens traveling abroad. It's been a, a challenge, especially coupled with the weaker eurozone with uh, residents coming here. There's a big uh, disparity in, in the direction of travel. And then the other, uh, so more runway and international and, and premium economy like, and I think the other, which I said is, is more of a, a structural positive is I really think we've settled at, you know, somewhere closer to 30% of days, uh, work from home across the U S population rather than I think it was something like seven or 8% pre-pandemic. And the, the people, hybrid workers, it turns out, have the highest incomes. So have money to spend, have time to travel is a great combination for the travel sector. And I think that's also conducive to a little more business travel where people can get away without disrupting their families. They can take their families with them or for personal travel, there are trips that are possible that wouldn't have been possible in two days. But if you can leave on a Thursday and come back Monday, it it's, uh, takes a lot of pressure off. So that makes me sanguine about, about the future. We have plenty of challenges ahead, but I, I think that's, that's the mix of headwinds and tailwinds as I see it. That's a great way to look at it, John. I, I, I always appreciate your insights and you, you give us a, a lot of both a lot of information and a lot of things to think about. So this has been terrific. 
really appreciate your time and uh, and uh, always love having you on Airlines Confidential. Look forward to doing it again. Love talking to you guys. Thanks so much. Thanks again, John. And we'll be back with more Airlines Confidential. Promotional consideration provided by the Archive.net. Celebrating 20 years with a fresh new look and over 60,000 items of AvGeek goodness. It's the hub of air transport history, and you're welcome aboard. The Archive.net. Thanks again to John for keeping us up to date on airline finances. Ben, our listeners were on top of the news again this week with questions. Nick from Washington, D.C. was curious about the reasons behind United's aircraft order. We talked about this a little bit, but Nick's looking for some more detail. He writes, love the show. United just placed another large order for aircraft. This is on top of their massive narrow body order from two years ago and their huge wide body order from last year. I'm curious what you think of their strategy. Are there really enough resources around the system for them to grow this much? air traffic control, gates, runway capacity, etc. Will there be enough demand to fill all those planes? Whose customers are they targeting to steal? ULCC or other legacies? I'd love to hear what you think. The whose customers they're targeting to steal, that's that's a really fascinating part of this. What do you think, Ben? United said the additional 50 787s and 60 A320 Neos will be for replacement and for growth. And even when replacing, there will be growth from upgaging. The A321s, for example, will replace smaller A320s. What do you think United will be doing with these planes five years from now when they start getting delivered? It's a great question, and thanks. I think most of this new order is replacement rather than true growth. But like you say, if they're replacing a smaller plane, it's still growth. The reality is, and now that we're back to sort of normal demand, I think we can count on this. Every 10 years, traffic increases around the world. So if you had a 100-seat plane working today, you're going to want a 120-seat plane in 10 years just because of natural growth. So I think United is playing that long game. Many of these planes aren't going to come for a long time, but they're going to replace older planes. They're going to be more fuel efficient, more sustainable, and give them the increment in capacity that's smaller than an entire new airplane. And I think that's good planning. So I'm not so worried about the resources being available because I think it means today when they have a 150-seat plane pulling up to the gate, eventually it'll be a 180-seat plane, but they won't need a new gate for that. I'll take it a little farther, Ben. I think I would be worried if I were American. Uh, I think this is targeted at American in in some really subtle ways. 
you know, the, the folks running United came from America and they know American really well. They know its vulnerabilities. I think United sees room to grow internationally and domestically in Chicago and take market share from American. Um, there's, you know, long term, 10 years from now, are we going to have two major airlines hubbing in Chicago? Uh, I don't know. Um, somebody may win that battle someday. Uh, and I think United's ahead in the game. American has lost or is losing hub battles in New York and Los Angeles. And, uh, and I think United um, uh, senses Chicago might be next. Um, the other, I think there's, there's also room to grow for them on the East Coast, both with Dulles and with Newark. Uh, and I think uh, if American, you know, Americans had trouble in New York and, and wanted to, the JetBlue Alliance very much so it would have feed for its international flights without that JetBlue feed, uh, it may be tougher and tougher for American to fly from Kennedy. We've even seen some apparent um, switching uh, to Philadelphia, where where that may be their East Coast strength. But I think United sees opportunity in New York and Chicago with this. I think you're right. I also think they may have Southwest in their crosshairs. Mm. You know, a couple of years ago, when they got rid of change fees, I think that was very targeted at Southwest. Yeah. What they said to the world is, we can match Southwest frequency, we can have a better frequent fire program, but we're harder to use because of change fees. And they got rid of that with the stroke of a pen. Mm -hmm. When you look at United's network, Chicago, Denver, Houston, they're very exposed to big Southwest operations. So bigger planes and 16 premium seats Mm. per departure, I think, are aimed at them also. Very interesting. Yeah. Well, here's a question for you, Scott. Tim from Southern California says, Hi, I'm a longtime listener to the podcast and enjoy your insights into the airline industry. I have a question about fleet planning. Many major airlines operate both the 787 and the A350 on their long-haul routes. I know there are significant advantages to a common fleet type, such as economies in maintenance, training, and crew scheduling. So why do so many airlines split their fleets between planes with the same capabilities? I can speculate It may be for negotiating leverage with suppliers or perhaps risk mitigation in the case of reliability issues with one of the manufacturers or the engine suppliers. These are really expensive planes, and if you make the wrong bet, you could really be at the short end of the stick. Yet other airlines 
are also successful with a single plane type. What do you think about this, Scott? Ben, I think in many cases, there are differences in the size of the 787 and the A350 that airlines are ordering. They're, they're not necessarily as interchangeable as you might think. The largest variant of the A350 has been very popular, and it offers more seats than the 787. The A350-1000 can carry up to 410 passengers in a three-class configuration, and it can be used short-haul or ultra-long-haul. Boeing says the 787-10, its largest variant, carries about 330 passengers. Airlines have gotten very good at tailoring seat counts with market demand on long routes, hub-to-spoke stuff. That's the beauty of both the 787 and the A350. They can handle a lot of point-to-point flying. An airline may order both so it can precisely target demand in each of its markets. Remember, too, that 787 deliveries started four years before the A350. Airbus had to redesign the airplane after criticism from major customers that it didn't measure up to the 787. And they came back with a good product. Some airlines may have committed to the 787 and then found the need for the new, wider A350. Tim's correct that airlines like playing the two airplane makers off each other, to get better pricing and also to deal with order book issues. If Boeing can't get you the 787s you need at a certain time, maybe Airbus can supply A350s on a better schedule for you. If you don't like the price on 737s, build your fleet with A320s and 737s, and then you'll get better pricing on future orders because the manufacturers know they may lose out to the other guy. I remember when American cut an exclusive deal with Boeing, American was only going to buy Boeing, and Boeing promised its best pricing worldwide. But that didn't work. American found it really needed Airbus planes. With Boeing, unless you fly all 737s like Southwest, there really aren't a lot of savings from commonality. Pilots have different type ratings. Engines are different across different models. There's just not a lot of commonality between a 737 and a 777 or a 787. One other factor mergers. Many big airlines were formed by mergers, and they have very different fleets that have been combined. Alaska Airlines recently went back to all Boeing after flying Airbus planes acquired from the Virgin America deal. But many airlines can't undergo that expensive refleeting. So they're stuck with a whole hodgepodge of planes. What am I missing, Ben? You know, that's all good. There's one other possible solution. Maybe some of those airlines just made a bad decision. (laughs) Yeah, right. That's possible, too. (laughs) That is possible. And and like a lot of things in the airline business, your bad decisions live with you for about 30 years. (laughs) That's exactly right. But there are enough good reasons to rationalize it, even if you did that. Yeah. (laughs) Well, that's all for this episode of Airlines Confidential. This is episode 208. And if you divide that by 52, that means four years. Thanks to all the listeners and sponsors. And thank you, Scott McCartney. 
And thank you, Ben Baldanza, for creating it and sustaining it for four years. A wonderful achievement. And it's been, I think, a, uh, a, a delight for many in the industry and many travelers around the world. Thanks. See you next week. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.